shooting at a synagogue in California leaves one dead. The New York Times becomes the Der Sturmer Times. Christian persecution and redemption in the Middle East, plus the discrimination of Palestinians by Arabs. All of this and more on this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Wow, wow, wow. That sounds better. Yes, last week sounded like I was doing the show out of my garage thanks to a technical oversight on my part. But we are sounding a bit more professional this week. Thankfully, thankfully. uh, Thank you guys for joining us. I am Winston R. Holland. And, uh, well, what can I say? What can I say? At approximately 11.23 a.m. Pacific Time, on Saturday, April 28, 2019, a gunman identified as a 19-year-old man, I don't want to repeat his name over and over again, but we should be praying for John T. Ernest, allegedly entered the Chabad Synagogue of Poway, California, near San Diego, on the last day of the Jewish holiday of Passover, Pesach, which actually fell on the Jewish sh- uh, shab- uh, Sabbath, Shabbat. Approximately 100 people were inside the synagogue. The gunmen opened fire in the building's foyer with an AR-15-style rifle, wounding Rabbi Israel Goldstein, the founding rabbi of the congregation, and killing 60-year-old Lori Gilbert Kay, who jumped in front of the rabbi to protect him. After the gunman fled, Goldstein spoke to the congregation despite his injury, telling them to stay strong. Another congregant and his eight-year-old niece were also wounded. All injured are expected to recover, although Goldstein lost his right index finger despite four hours of surgery. My understanding is that one finger was saved and the other was not. The shooter's gun jammed during the shooting, preventing additional casualties. Two members of the congregation ran towards him. The the suspect then fled the synagogue, entering a Honda sedan. An off-duty United States Border Patrol officer working as a security guard at the synagogue opened fire as the suspect escaped and hit his car multiple times, but the suspect fled uninjured. Shortly thereafter, Ernest phoned and reported the shooting. He was apprehended approximately two miles from the synagogue by a San Diego police officer responding to the shooting. Ernest jumped out of his car with his hands up and was taken into custody without incident. The arresting officer saw a rifle on the car seat. The attack occurred exactly six months after the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that left 11 dead and seven wounded, which so far is the deadliest attack on a Jewish community in United States history. Okay, so there is a lot that we could say about this. Of course, please keep praying for the people of this community, just like we need, just like we need to keep other tragedies of recent in our prayers, especially the Sri Lanka incident that left over 250 Christians dead, the uh, New Zealand incident, Christchurch incident that left over 50 Muslims dead. Uh, there's a lot to pray about these days, a whole lot to, to pray about and, and bring before God. Um, 
It's really amazing how the news can quickly move past such as such unspeakable tragedies as those because unfortunately tragedies follow tragedies. Uh, we live in a fallen world that is highly imperfect and unfortunately this kind of stuff goes on and, and sadly will continue to go on until the end of time. But uh, I feel like as a Christian myself, uh, this article on stream.org that Dr. Michael Brown, himself a Messianic Jew, wrote directly to his Jewish brothers and sisters uh, in, the res- in response to the shooting is, is very apropos. Uh, as, as a lover of the Jewish people myself, my heart absolutely breaks, not only for their loss, but the fact that this man claimed to be a Christian. He claimed to be a Christian. Now, this man was and, and is, uh, he, sur- he survived. Uh, amazingly, he wasn't gunned down at some point. Uh, this man is really is, he's demented beyond belief. He is deceived beyond all reason and understanding, especially if you look at this guy's manifesto that I'm not going to be really reading on here. That's been done plenty of other places. But if you look at this guy's manifesto, um, it is, it's truly mind-boggling uh, mind the types of unbelievable general, generalizations about the Jews that he makes and even trying to bring in Scripture uh, to justify his positions. It's, it's mind-boggling. Um, so uh, let's just be clear that this man was categorically rejecting what the New Testament clearly teaches, and Dr. Brown lays this out clearly in his article uh, to the American Jewish community. The synagogue shooter was not a Christian. Uh, But before I get to that, I want to cover a few more of the events of the shooting because I think they highlight something uh, I seem to be repeating every week because uh, there seems to be a movement against it, especially in the Twitter sphere and by the far left and so forth, that, you know, what are you doing messing with thoughts and prayers? You know, uh, your prayers don't keep people in the, in the, in the, in the, in the pew safe or whatever. Uh, and I, <laughs> this incident, amazingly, a few weeks after that ludicrous tweet by Cortez came out, um, this, uh, this story illustrates how that is not the case. Because this could have been, this could have been a massacre. Uh, obviously, one person was massacred. Uh, one person was killed. But many, many, many more could have been, except for what happened, as I briefly mentioned uh, in the intro. So, yes, God is interacting. And that's my thesis, is that God is interacting in human history, even though he allows certain evils to happen. Why? Why does God allow evil and suffering? It's a huge topic, right? That not one that we're going to flesh out on, on this broadcast, although I'd actually rather enjoy, really enjoy doing that. Um, but just quickly, God knows the end from the beginning. We don't. God knows all things. We don't. He knows how all things fit together. We don't. And He has an ultimate plan far beyond our comprehension. We, we have no idea one, in, one evil incident that is allowed to happen, what good 
can come from that in one month, in one day, in one year, in five years, in 10 years, 100, 200, 500 years. We don't have that knowledge, but the God who exists outside of time, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he does. He does know that. And so we can trust him in times of difficulty and in times of tragedy. And we can embrace him and we can run to him for comfort, for healing, for peace. Or we can do the thing that makes absolutely no sense at all is to reject him because we say things like, how can a good God allow certain evil and suffering to exist? To which my response is, what do you mean by good? Where are you getting this transcendent, objective, universal good by which you judge God by in the first place? Because without God and without the goodness that flows from his nature into us and into our conscience, uh, consciences and into our being, there literally is no standard of good and evil. Otherwise, it's personal, it's societally subjective, and you can't say one society is, is worse than another. You can't say that the Nazis are, are any worse than any other, uh, any other nation state. Because in that society, anti-Semitism, and actually we're going to see this in a little bit, uh, about Hitler's rise to power, actually, and how the, the New York Times, back even in like the 30s, got it way, 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 way wrong. But in the, uh, in the Nazi society, anti-Semitism and eventually the murder of Jews on a mass scale became something that was, um, that was uh, culturally acceptable. So the, the only actual objective standard that can exist uh, of good and evil has to be from God. So when you say a good God would not allow evil, you're really putting the cart before the horse because without God, there is no true standard of good and evil. It's just a personal preference. So uh, I want to read a little bit more of the events of what happened at the, uh, at the, synagogue, at the synagogue shooting. Uh, this is from the Times of Israel. Poway Kabad rabbi had asked Border Patrol agent to pray armed just in case. Jonathan Morales, an armed off-duty U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agent who recently discovered his Jewish roots, was among the worshipers at Chabad of Poway on Saturday when John Ernest entered the synagogue near San Diego during Passover services and began shooting. Quote, Morales recently discovered his Jewish roots. He would travel three and a half hours from the California town of El Centro to pray with us at our shul. He felt this was his house of worship, and many times I said, Jonathan, you work for the Border Patrol. Please arm yourself when you are here. We never know when we will need it. U.S. President Donald Trump spoke with Goldstein on Sunday and took to Twitter to praise the rabbi and Morales, writing, he may have been, an, he may have been off duty, but his talents for law, law enforcement weren't sincerest. Thank you to our great Border Patrol agent who stopped the shooter at the synagogue in Poway, California. He may have been off duty, but his talents for law enforcement weren't. Now, here's where, <laughs> yes, yes, prayer can keep people safe in the pews. 
In a moment that Goldstein referred to as miraculous, Ernest Gunn jammed, and congregant Oscar Stewart, a 51-year-old Army veteran, and Morales attempted to subdue the gunmen. Morales was also able to open fire and give pursuit. After Ernest fled the building, Morales followed in his own vehicle and shot and hit Ernest's car. Ernest soon turned himself in to law enforcement. On Sunday, Goldstein, his two hands and fresh blue bandages, gave a detailed recounting of Saturday's heroin shooting. Quote, I was preparing my sermon. I walked out of the sanctuary and into the lobby, and I saw my dear friend Lori Kay. I walked into the banquet hall to wash my hands, walked two or three footsteps, and I heard a loud bang. That bang was the sound of the first shots fired by Ernest, a college student who entered the Kavad house undetected amid a flow of mourners who were gathering for Yizkor, the traditional memorial service held on the final day of Passover. I turned around and saw something indescribable, Goldstein continued. Here was a young man standing with a rifle pointing right at me. He had sunglasses on. I couldn't see his eyes. I couldn't see his soul. The rabbi said that when he saw the shooter, he initially froze, then raised his hands to cover his face. Two of his fingers were blown off. One was reattached by surgeons Saturday. Gilbert Kay, whom relatives and friends on Saturday described as a woman of unconditional love and generosity, was the only fatality of Ernest's mass shooting. So here's a so the, the first miracle was that the guy's gun jammed. But then there's a, a second miracle uh, at work here. So in a, it says here, in a remarkable series of events, the rabbi and a handful of congregants were able to save a group of children playing in the adjacent banquet hall, preventing a full-fledged massacre. I ran to gather the children, Goldstein says. My granddaughter, who was four and a half years old, saw her grandpa with a bleeding hand. She saw me shouting, get out, get out. She didn't deserve to see her grandfather like that. Aided by Peretz, an Israeli war veteran who was also at Chabad of Poway with his family Sunday, Goldstein was able to usher the children out of the banquet hall with the shooter in pursuit. But then, as we had mentioned before, Ernest's gun jammed. So they were able to get the children out of there. The gun jammed. It, I mean, who knows? I mean, who knows really how many casualties could have come from that? Uh, but the but the children and everybody but one in the synagogue was saved. And of course, the one that was lost was just uh, people had only unbelievable things to say about her. I mean, she literally jumped in front of the rabbi to save his life from the shooter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what did what did Jesus say? John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, but that they lay down their life. For their friends, and that's what this uh, beautiful lady, Lori uh, Gilbert K., did. So please keep the Poway Synagogue in your prayers. Uh, Chabad of Poway Synagogue, I think, is the is the exact name. And uh, so President uh, Trump was actually the first person to. Uh, talk to him, or one of the first, I guess, major leaders, whatever, to talk to him after the shooting. They called, had a good 10, 15-minute conversation, but then uh, he invited the rabbi to come out to the White House uh, for a Rose Garden ceremony, 
and to and to say a few words and uh, they were really really touching and I have recently figured out <laughs> how to uh, how to uh, finally get some get some audio into this into this podcast and so let's go ahead and and this is uh, Rabbi Goldstein at the uh, Rose Garden at the White House yesterday. Just five days ago, Saturday morning, I faced evil and the worst darkness of all time, right in our own house of worship, right at Chabad Poway. I faced him and I had to make a decision. Do I run and hide or do I stand tall and fight and protect all those that are there? We cannot control what others do, but we can control how we react. My dear Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendosh Nersen, taught me the way we react to darkness is with light. It was that moment that I made a decision. No matter what happens to me, I'm going to save as many people as possible. I should have been dead by now, based on the rule of statistics. I was in the line of fire, bullets flying all the way. My fingers got blown off, but I did not stop. The Rebbe taught me, as a Jew, you are a soldier of God. You need to stand tall and stand fast and do whatever it takes to change the world. My life has changed forever but it changed so I could make change. And I could help others learn how to be strong, how to be mighty and tall. Many have asked me, Rabbi, where do we go from here? How do we prevent this? And I, my response is what my Rebbe told me when President Ronald Reagan was shot. The Rebbe said, we need to go back to the basics and introduce a moment of silence in all public schools so that Amen. So that children from early childhood on could recognize that there's more good to the world, that they are valuable, that there is accountability, and every human being is created in God's image. If something good could come out of this terrible, terrible, horrific event, let us bring back a moment of silence to our public school system. I also want to thank the United States of America. I'd like to thank our dear, honorable Mr. President for being, as they say in Yiddish, a mensch par excellence. <laughs> Mr. President, when you called me, I was at home weeping. You were the first person who began my healing. You heal people in their worst of times, and I'm so grateful for that. All right. Um, wow, that was that was quite a compliment. That <laughs> you usually don't think of President Trump as the first person to uh, begin somebody's healing, uh, but apparently. Um, what he he did for the rabbi was was very touching, and of course it's great to see it's great to see 
him at the synagogue or, or him at the White House and um, you know be able to be able to discuss these things. Uh, certainly, you know, there's a debate <coughs> amongst Christians about prayer in schools. You know, if you allow prayer in schools and could you allow you know other religions to pray and all of that. I, I think ultimately that religion is always going to be taught in school, public, private, whatever. The question is which one. Uh, you can teach scientific materialism, the idea that uh, we're all one big cosmic accident. All that exists in the universe is basically the what we can look, touch, uh, look at, touch, smell, taste, um, or the uh, increasingly recognize scientific idea that the universe had a beginning and you can philosophically induce from that if the universe had a beginning then something had to have started it uh, with the steady state theory and oscillating models and so forth of the past you could say that the universe <coughs> excuse me that the you know universe was eternal but scientifically we know that's not the case so if it's not eternal it had a beginning and if it had a beginning it had to have a beginner and of course that beginner must have been eternal, but anyway, this this is not that kind of podcast. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to continue on uh, now to the article that I mentioned at at the beginning. Uh, I think when someone makes the claim that I'm a Christian, I'm defending Christianity. Of course, then he goes talk about you know he starts he's talking about the we gotta we're losing our whiteness and all that or whatever. That's when. Uh, you know, obviously, that's Nutterville. Uh, what, as a Christian, what I, of course, take unbelievable umbrage at is that this man would make a claim and he would do something like this in the name of Christ. Now, we see terrorist acts in the name of Allah every day. Uh, and, it's, and you can even find it codified in the Quran, in the Hadith, such as uh, Surah 929, where it says to strive hard and fight against the unbelievers. However, to make the claim that somehow the New Testament teaches violence towards unbelievers is absolutely insane. To say that the New Testament teaches anti-Semitism and the strong generalization generalizations about the Jews is insane. There's absolutely no place for that. And I just want to read some from Dr. Brown's article, of course. All of these are linked at mideastnewsbrief.com. I also uh, tweeted this article out uh, on my Twitter account. You can follow me there, at mideastbriefing. And like I said last week, if you want a preview of the show that's coming up, just follow my Twitter account throughout the week, and that's what you get. So let me just read some from Dr. Brown's article. To the American Jewish community, the synagogue shooter was not a Christian. I don't care what this demented young man claims. I don't care how much scripture he can quote or how much Christianese he uses. The man is not a Christian. And I can say that on the authority of the New Testament. Jesus himself deplores such heinous, murderous, cowardly acts. How can I be sure? Jesus taught us to judge a tree by its fruits. James, actually Jacob, wrote that we must prove our faith by our works and that faith without accompanying works was dead. That's in James chapter 2. And John, Yohanan, in Hebrew, said that, quote, 
no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3.15, for those that aren't uh, maybe as aware of uh, Christian theology, is that when someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit and thus eternal life. 1 John 3.15 says very clearly, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So by the very definition and and clarity of the text of in 1 John 3, that if someone is going out committing acts of murder in the name of Christ, then we can know that they are, they're not a Christian. We judge a tree by its fruits. No Christians are not perfect. No Christians are not far from perfect, but the New Testament is pretty clear on that. The man is a murderer. He does not have eternal life. The New Testament is clear, quote, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 3.10 It is one thing to be a repentant murderer. It is one thing to commit a terrible crime, even to take another life, and to ask God forgiveness, turning to him in contrition and welcoming the legal penalty for your misdeeds. It is another thing to murder innocent people in Jesus' name. Such a person denies the very faith they possess. So it's a great article. I've got it linked, again, up at midisnewsbrief.com, so make sure to check it out. But uh, this man was in no way representing the teachings of the New Testament, and I would invite anybody <laughs> to challenge to challenge me or Dr. Brown on that because uh, I've read the New Testament many times, and there's just absolutely no way that that is in there. And, and in fact, it is taught quite the contrary. Uh, Jesus says to love your enemies and pray even for those who persecute you. Why? Because God's because you're to be perfect, like your Father in heaven is perfect. In the same way, He sends the rain on the evil and and, and the good, on the just and the un, unjust. He gives food and drink and good things and family and life and love, even to those who hate Him. Atheists who go out on. Uh, these campaigns and become millionaires and write books and have all the finest things in life, and their goal is to get people to reject the God who created them. Many times they have great health, good marriages, make a lot of money, enjoy, uh, enjoy life in uh, certain uh, in certain ways. I, I don't think they're going to have any kind of ultimate fulfillment because I think you you have to have that in God. But that's just to say, look how God treats His enemies. And that's the way Jesus wants us to treat ours, with love and prayer. Even this John T. Ernest guy, how do we respond to this 19-year-old demented young man? We respond with prayer. It's like I was talking about on the the podcast last week. There are certain politicians here at home and on the world stage that if I start thinking about them too much, my heart can go to a place it doesn't need to go to. I have to pray for them. I like immediately have to pray for them. Otherwise, I'm just going to get so mad and so angry. Uh, but that doesn't help anything. What helps is what helps is is prayer. As we saw in this incident, with oh my gosh, thank you God, that the gun jammed and we didn't see a slaughter of ten, twenty, thirty people. I mean, wow. I mean, really, I I think it's a good idea just to take a moment and to thank God for that. Uh, I also want to make it make it clear. 
um, just like with the uh, the New Zealand shooter, you know, we have to be very careful when something like this happens, and then we say, well, this is uh, this is Trump's fault, or this is whoever's fault, or or whatever. Uh, it, it's usually a, a, a bit more nuanced than that. And uh, just like with the New Zealand guy, there was a—I mean, this guy had this guy was certainly no uh, right-wing conservative. Uh, he definitely had some uh, uh, some what would be considered more so leftist views. And with with this guy in particular, in some ways, yeah, he's a he's a white nationalist. He's a, he's a racist. He believes in white supremacy and the you know skin color purity of the European continent uh, really bothers him. So all that is all that is is garbage. But the question was, and I think a, a lot of people jump to the conclusion real quick that this is Trump's fault, that this is a result of Trump's anti-Semitism, supposed anti-Semitism, that it's a response to, to his treatment of the Jewish community, his rhetoric, his and, and all of this. But uh, uh, his manifesto would strongly indicate otherwise. And maybe you could say, maybe you could actually say that this synagogue shooting was in part Trump's fault, but maybe not for the reason that we think. From the Washington Times, synagogue shooting suspect despised Zionist Jew-loving Trump. The suspect in the deadly shooting at a San Diego County synagogue had no love for President Trump, apparently blasting him as a, quote, Zionist, Jew-loving traitor in a hate-filled manifesto posted before Saturday's attack. A person identifying himself as John Ernest posted a 4,000-word screed about an hour before the shooting, saying he was motivated by his hatred of Jews and belief in white supremacy, as well as the October 27th attack on the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, which left 11 dead. As for Mr. Trump, quote, this is directly from the manifesto, you mean that Zionist, Jew-loving, anti-white, traitorous blank sucker? Don't make me laugh. He said in the manifesto, according to Heavy.com and other news outlets. So, I guess in a very bizarre, twisted way, you could blame Trump for this. If the fact that he didn't take, he has not taken persecution of Jews upon himself, I guess this man felt like he had to take it into his own hands because our government wasn't doing enough about those, you know, dirty Jews. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to take care of it. So he calls Trump a Zionist, right? So that means he is in favor of the Jewish National Home for the uh, a national home for the Jewish people, Jew loving and anti and anti white. Now, why would he call Trump anti white? Um, well, I I think I have an idea, because Trump is not what the media makes him out to be. This white supremacist, white nationalist type. He's not at all. In fact, before he ran for president, if you look at the history. Um, Man, he was actually loved by the black community and even received rewards for diversity. But uh, suddenly, he's a, he's a white nationalist and he's anti-black 
because he takes a, a more hawkish view on immigration, which he is not against immigration. That's a complete red herring. He is for legal immigration and safe immigration, immigration and keeping out jihadis, keeping out human traffickers, keeping out drugs, and so forth. So it's, he's not anti-immigrant. He's just anti-illegal immigrant because of the consequences that America, Americans face from people getting into our country that, that don't need to be here. Um, so, and he's, been, I mean, you could argue he's one of the most pro-black presidents. Uh, there's a, a fa- very famous pastor who came out and said that President Trump would, be, would, would go down as the most pro-black president uh, in our history. This was a famous, famous uh, black pastor, I think, uh, Daryl Scott, I forget his name. Well, and then not long after that, Trump does the prison reform. Right, which even people on the left, even uh, communists like uh, Van Jones, were praising. So, I, so I mean, because Trump loved Jews, because Trump loves Israel. Oh, and, and by the way, he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. He uh, designated, uh, he recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He's uh, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. I mean, you can't, you can't get more <laughs> pro-Jewish than that. Plus, his, uh, not to mention his, his daughter-in-law and son-in-law, who are both in his office half the day every day, are Orthodox Jews. Um, so, I, I, again, we have to be—not that Trump's perfect. I don't—I've never said he's perfect. He's a flawed human like we all are. There are things that I disagree with him on. But to call him a white supremacist, white nationalist, anti-Semite, and all of that, this is, I guess, the—I um, uh, guess— I mean, he was right on a few things. Uh, Trump is Zionist and, and, and Jew-loving. I don't think Trump is anti-white, um, of course, but he's, he's not a white supremacist. So you, you get this guy's thinking how if he is uh, not a white supremacist and doesn't believe in the, the purity of uh, fair, uh, the fairer skin, then uh, he's just against white people altogether. Really, really bizarre. So I wanted to clear the uh, clear the air on that. Um, and again, all of this, please pray. Just continue to pray for the uh, the Poway Synagogue. Pray for that community. Pray that there's healing. Uh, pray that Christ is glorified amongst that community and through this tragedy. Because this is what God does. It is how He works. It is through this through tragedy that God does unbelievably amazing things. Even, yes, even in Syria, even in an area that ISIS formerly controlled, a place of tyranny and oppression and death and terrorism, new life uh, forms from that. So I I actually uh, look forward to getting to that in a little bit because uh, there is hope there is good news. There is good news. Despite the bad news, there is good news. Okay, so uh, I want to shift gears a little bit into the, uh, and of course I want to uh, remember that uh, yesterday was Holocaust Remembrance Day. It was also the National Day of Prayer. Um, and it was also the March of the Living, 
which was uh, which is a march that's been going on since I believe, uh, yeah, nineteen eighty eight. And uh, yesterday, more than ten thousand people from fifty two countries um, marched in Poland. They did a three kilometer march from Auschwitz to Birkenau, and basically remembering remembering the um, the unspeakable tragedy and horror that was the Holocaust uh, perpetrated um, chiefly by Adolf Hitler. And uh, so uh, just there's, <laughs> there's just so much to remember. There, there is so much to pray about. Uh, there was a, actually a beautiful story um, that uh, a, a guy posted about. I'm just going to read from you. It's it's uh, actually a video. I retweeted it at MideastNewsBrief.com. So uh, uh, you can go there and, and watch it. You can see the guy. But this guy was a hero. And not only was he a hero, he, nobody knew about it for a long, long time. So check this uh, check this out. There's no audio, so I'm just going to read it uh, read it real quick. But I think this is a an appropriate video for Holocaust Remembrance Day. Check this out. Okay. This man is invited on a TV show, but he has no clue why everyone suddenly stands up. He kept a huge secret for 50 years, but it was finally uncovered. In 1938, Sir Nicholas Winton single-handedly began to rescue Jewish children from the Holocaust. He successfully brought 669 Jewish children from Czechoslovakia to Bolivia and helped them find new families in Britain. Most of the children's parents would perish in the Auschwitz concentration camp. But when Winton never mentioned the children to anyone until his wife, Gret, found a notebook in the attic 50 years later. It included names and pictures of all the children that Winton had saved. His wife gave the book to a journalist, and he was invited on a TV program. But doesn't know that every single person in the audience is a child he'd rescued. You can believe that. Now adults, they all came to thank him personally. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh... The, uh, the video reads, Nicholas Winton died in 2015 at age 106. So, uh, you can see the, the video, which uh, speaks a, a lot more than, uh, uh, the, the video image is just amazing to see this guy in a room with a ton of people, and they all suddenly stand up to thank him for something. He had no idea that his wife even knew that he had done. He did this, and he kept it secret for 50 years. He would have kept it secret the rest of his life if his wife hadn't found it in the attic. Nobody would have ever known about that heroism and, and about how he did that. So, uh, so for Holocaust Remembrance Day, I thought that was a really, really neat, uh, really neat story to tell. Again, you just don't. You so uh, on Saturday, this past Saturday, uh, seven days ago or whatever, it's Friday, May third, two thousand nineteen. Today, I, I'm kind of reeling from the synagogue shoot it, shooting, and then, and then on the day of this synagogue shooting, if. <laughs> You can believe it. 
the New York Times in their international edition publishes this horrific cartoon containing just uh, anti-Semitic tropes that have just been used throughout the years. Uh, And the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting in America uh, documented this really well. Um, So I'm just going to kind of go through this, uh, describe the cartoon a little bit and some of the issues with it. Uh, But the idea that, that something like this could appear in a United States-based newspaper is, is, truly, is truly alarming. A dog with a Jewish star around its neck in the face of a Jewish leader leading a blind, yarmulke-wearing U.S. president would be standard fare for the notorious Nazi newspaper Der Sturmer and for its modern descendants. If you're not familiar with Der Sturmer, it was a German paper that was in print from 1923 to 1945. And it uh, was basically kind of like, in some ways, kind of like today's National Enquirer, Daily Star, something like that, kind of tabloid, sensationalist type newspaper. But one thing that set it apart, and one reason why Hitler himself really liked it, was that Der Sturmer uh, was very anti-Semitic and was known uh, specifically for its uh, anti-Semitic cartoons and its caricature of the Jews. Unfortunately, the New York Times must now be counted among those uh, among those descendants, the modern descendants of Der Sturmer. Just days after the Times published an op-ed falsely claiming Jesus was a Palestinian, the New York Times International Edition placed this cartoon on their op-ed page depicting Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu as a dog leading a blind U.S. President Donald Trump. And it contains kind of some, I'm looking at the cartoon right now, and it it contains kind of some standard fair tropes. Uh, You've got the Jew with the the extra large nose. You've got the Jew as a dog. Uh, And of course, just to... uh, uh, to really sweeten the deal, you've got a star of David around its neck. Uh, but then, I, I, uh, if that's not if that's not bad enough, I, again, what is what is the trope? What is the standard trope? The Jews rule the world. The Jews control everything. The Jews control the media. The Jews control business. The Jews control commerce. They control they control everything. And we don't even we think we're in charge, but really, the Jews the Jews are in charge. What is this car- cartoon depicting? Why does Trump uh, have on bl- a blind's man, uh, blind man's pair of glasses? Because it's the idea. So the blind man is holding the leash around the neck of, of the Jew, but it's really the, the Jewish dog that's leading the, the Gentile. It's not the uh, uh, but secretively, uh, cons- uh, conspicu- uh, inconspicuously. Right, it is. It's uh, the Gentile thinks he's leading, right? But really, but really, the Jew, really the Jew, is leading. The cartoonist is by the award-winning, aren't they all? Portuguese cartoonist Ant- Antonio Antunes Moreira, and was distributed by the New York Times Service and Syndicate. After a wave of criticism. Um, which began from the left-wing uh, Jewish worker, the Times removed the image and tweeted this statement. 
And I'm not gonna read. I'm not gonna read it all. But uh, what what was interesting about their initial uh, what was interesting about their initial response was uh, was that it was provided by the New York Times News Service and Syndicate, uh, which has since deleted it. And uh, Gilead Ine, I am I'm not sure how to say his last name, uh, but he he shared a tweet. From from someone, uh, he's the senior editor at the at Camera, the um, Committee for Accuracy and Middle East Reporting in America. Um, and, and this was what's interesting. He says, "What's striking about this New York Times editor's note concerning a disgustingly anti-Semitic, almost Der Sturmer class cartoon that ran on April 25th is how it impl- implicitly passes the buck to the New York Times news service and syndicate. Most cartoons originate." From syndicates, so it's almost this idea. Oh, we we put it off on the you know it's it's a syndicate or whatever. Well, I mean that's where cartoons come from anyway. They come from syndication services. But he also ta- kind of uh, uh, and then uh, he tweets out basically you know the process by which something typically gets approved in the media. And this is what Gilead said. He says it was provided by the New York Times News Service and Syndicate selected by our editors, placed on the international print edition by our journalists, given a pass by every Times man and woman who saw it before the presses were run. There's no way one person saw this cartoon. Multiple people had to have seen it for it to get to the press in the first place. And so that tells you a bit about the culture of the New York Times. Now, to be fair to the Times, they did... uh, To be fair to the Times, they did um, uh, give an uh, updated apology where they said, uh, where they came out and just flat out said, we apologize for the anti-Semitic cartoon we published. Here's our statement. And then they went on to give their statement where it was a more, uh, it was a more direct um, apology for the cartoon. Um, now, the New York Times actually allowed an op-ed to be published that is titled uh, A Despicable Cartoon in the Times. I mean, the Times knows that they've got to, <laughs> they've got to make this right. And so uh, they actually allowed a, uh, an op-ed uh, just really that just called out the New York Times itself, which was, which was pretty interesting. Um, and, and even points out the anti-Semitism of the New York Times even beyond this particular cartoon. I just want to read a little bit, uh, a little, uh, an excerpt from that because I, I, think, it's, I think it's pretty illuminating. Um, so, how, and, uh, so it reads, this op-ed in the Times, how have even the most blatant expe- expressions of anti-Semitism become almost undetectable to editors who think it's part of their job to stand up to bigotry? The reason is the almost torrential criticism of Israel and the mainstreaming of anti-Zionism, including by this paper, which has become so common that people have, that people have been desensitized to its inherent bigotry. So long as anti-Semitic arguments or images are framed, however speciously, as commentary about Israel, there will be a tendency to view them as a form of political opinion, not ethnic prejudice. 
But as I noted in a Sunday Review essay in February, anti-Zionism is all but indistinguishable from anti-Semitism in practice and often in intent. However, much progressives, I would say regressives, try to deny this. Add to the mix the media's routine demonization of Netanyahu, and it is easy to see how the cartoon came to be drawn and published. Already depicted as a malevolent Jewish leader, it's just a short step to to depict him as a malevolent Jew. The publication of the cartoon isn't just an error of judgment, either. The paper owes the Israeli Prime Minister an apology. It owes itself some serious reflection as to how it came to publish that cartoon, and how its publication came, to many longtime readers, as a, as a shock, but not a surprise. All right, so, you know, the world's kind of reeling from this, right? It gets out and, and, and so forth. Um, and, you know, the New York Times are uh, kind of, it seems they're, figuring out how to how to make this right on on some level. I you know, I, again, I don't know what goes on in the boardroom at the New York Times. Um are you know, are they are they all sitting around and kind of um planning out ways they can uh you know, make their next anti-Semitic move? Probably not. Um but that that initial apology especially was was pretty bad. <laughs> was pretty bad. Um uh but then the the second one got better, but I couldn't believe it when I saw what came next. What came next? Just days after apologizing for an anti-Semitic cartoon that ran its international edition, the Times published another, yes, another, offensive cartoon in its international paper, this one depicting Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu as a sunglasses-wearing Moses carrying a tablet and taking a selfie, which a Times spokesperson tepidly defended as not as bad as the first cartoon. So it's, uh, it's a picture of Netanyahu in a robe. It looks like his, his eyes are blacked out, and he's holding what looks like a, a, either a, a Ten Commandment, uh, like a Ten Commandment tablet with a Star of David on it, uh, taking a selfie with a phone. Um, I would probably agree this one isn't as bad as the other one, but when when we've got the Holocaust really in our rearview mirror, in terms of history, seventy years ago wasn't that it really isn't that long ago, um, and you're really just uh, making uh, the sacred satirical. You got to be careful with this stuff, especially with the Jews, because it's this kind of stuff, this kind of propaganda, what does it do? It stokes hatred. And hatred stokes violence. So the media has a very important role, amongst which I am a member you know, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but I don't know if you know this or not. To be pro-Israel is not to be anti-Palestinian. To be pro-Israel is not to be anti-Palestinian. And whenever I talk about the Palestinian Arabs on this broadcast, I make it very clear that just because I am politically a Zionist and believe in a, a legal, uh, that the Jews have a legal right and a historic right, to uh, to have a nation in their historic homeland doesn't mean that I'm somehow 
like against the Palestinians, against the Arabs that are there. Like, I'm against a Palestinian state because I think that would be bad for Palestinians, not just Jews, not just the Christians. Why? Because, as I've mentioned many times on this broadcast, the Palestinian Authority is a terrorist entity. They give stipends to terrorists who kill Jews. They call them martyrs, call them heroes, name their schools, have events after these people who glorify violence. And they're going to try to do, like, Fatah in Judea and Samaria is going to try to do a unity government with Hamas, who even the United States and many other places uh, recognize as a terrorist entity. No way. That would be terrible. (laughs) That would be terrible for the Arabs in Israel. Okay. I'm 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 getting a little I'm getting a little ahead of, uh, ahead of myself. So we have to be careful the way that we present things, the way that we talk about people in the media because that can stoke hatred and and violence. That's why Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 5, he said uh, he basically equated hatred with murder. He he who is angry with his brother has already committed murder in his heart. That's why he said whoever lusts after a woman has already committed adultery in his heart because it's those things are the they're the beginning, right? If you don't have the lust, if you don't have the um, the hatred, you're not going to have the old adultery and you're not going to have you're not going to have the murder. So we we have to be very careful and especially with 6 million the murder of 6 million Jews in our rearview mirror, especially with the 1947-48 Israeli War of Independence and the desire of the, the surrounding nations to wipe them out, the 1967 war with the desire of the Arab nations to wipe them out, the, the intifadas, the terrorism, and everything we already are dealing with, a newspaper that is supposedly tolerant and not bigoted doesn't need to encourage any more problems than, than the Jewish people already have. Um. So I'm, I'm going to move on from there. There's a, there's a, very, uh, a great piece, uh, a couple more pieces I wanted to mention that you can get at midisnewsbrief.com that I've linked to. Uh, the New York Times' first article about Hitler's rise is absolutely stunning. And I know that sounds like clickbait, uh, <laughs> but this clickbait is a- it's actually correct. It really is stunning when you look at it through the, the rearview lens of history. And this is from Vox. This is not this is not a right-wing publication. Uh, and actually, at the very end of the article, it's, uh, after the article is over, it says, Watch, Donald Trump's rise is a scary moment in America. So uh, hardly, a, hardly a conservative publication. Um, but I think they, they very honestly and correctly... Uh, pointed out uh, how, the, how the Times thought about Hitler. So I just want to say a few things from it. Um, this is a, a quote from, uh, they, they quote this article uh, from the Times in, I believe it was 19, uh, yeah, November 21st, 1922, their very first article about Adolf Hitler. So this is what it says. He is credibly credited are you allowed to say that now? Credibly credited? Would, would you be credible if you said credibly credited in your, uh, in your article these days? I don't think so. Anyway, he is credibly credited with being actuated by lofty, unselfish patriotism. Oh, okay. 
He's <laughs> he probably does not know himself just what he wants to accomplish. Why would how would you even begin to know that? How how any politician probably does not know himself what he wants to accomplish. It it kind of reminds me of certain politicians, certain anti-Semitic uh, politicians here in the U.S. that are like, oh, she doesn't know what she means by that. She doesn't know. Um, The keynote on his propaganda in speaking and writing is violent anti-Semitism. His followers are nicknamed Hanenken Kruzler. Uh, I'm sure I botched that. So violent are Hitler's fulminations against the Jews that a number of prominent Jewish citizens are reported to have sought safe asylums in the Bavarian highlands. This is 1922. This is uh, about 17, 18 years before World War II. I mean, just, just a few years after World War I. Easily reached by fast motor cars, whence they could carry their women and children when forewarned of an anti-Semitic St. Bartholomew's night. But, now here we go, guys. Here we go. I want you to say, does this sound familiar? When you think about the U.S. media, does this sound familiar? But several reliable, well-informed sources confirmed. <laughs> oh, man, I just... Uh confirmed the idea that it, it's so absurd. It's not funny. It's not funny, but it's, it's so absurd. Confirmed the idea that Hitler's anti-Semitism was not so genuine or violent as it sounded, and that he was merely using anti-Semitic propaganda as a bait to catch masses of followers and keep them aroused enthusiastic, and in line for the time when his organization is perfected and sufficient, or per, perfected, yeah, they were, they were certainly attempting to perfect people called eugenics, and sufficiently powerful to be employed effectively for political purposes. A sophisticated politician credited Hitler with peculiar political cleverness for laying emphasis and overemphasis on anti-Semitism, saying... You can't expect the masses to understand or appreciate your finer re final real aims. You must feed the masses with cruder morsels and ideas like anti-Semitism. It would be politically all wrong to tell them the truth where you really are leading them. Wow. I mean, boy, I, I think they could have made the uh, uh, headline to the article really more clickbaitish. I mean, get this. It's it, this is the art. Several reliable, well-informed sor sources confirmed. Is this not a similar thing that we've been hearing like the past two years with the whole Rus Russia collusion? Unnamed sources confirmed. Unnamed sources. These sources. This sources. Whatever. Adam Schiff going around saying, "Oh yeah, there's uh, there's collusion. I've seen the intel. I've got evidence. You know, blah blah blah." And it was all baloney. It was all baloney. And uh, this is just, I mean, wow, it's like the, the, the times, I mean, it hasn't changed. And, I, you know, I'm really I, almost, it's not about a political point right or left, but it's, it's about, you got to take politicians at their words. You can't assume you know there's just, they're just using nuance, they're just using uh, political correctness, or, or, or they're just trying to say what uh, is being said in order to, um, uh, to get more popular support. Um, 
So, man, let that be a lesson. I hope that's a lesson. I hope a lot of people in the media read that. I'm, I'm certainly going to take that as a lesson for me as a very unseasoned journalist to go when a, a politician on any side of the aisle says something that we don't just assume that they're just saying that in order to uh, you know appease their base or whatever. Now, I, I mean, I understand on some level that in, in primaries when – you know, you're trying to get your extreme left or extreme right base in or whatever. And I think politicians, politicians on all sides say unfortunate things. Um, but, but man, when, when you're dealing with this virulent anti-Semitism and we just, and we just say where literally Jews are, are, are running for the hills in 1922, 20 years before the Holocaust, That's something you take seriously. Uh, all right. There are a few more things I need to get to. We are already at an hour. So I have a, I have a whole stack on, <laughs> on Christian persecution in the Middle East. Let me just say a few things. Uh, there's a report in Breitbart, which people call Breitbart a, an anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic publication. I have not seen anti-Semitic stuff come out of Breitbart. Um, I've, it's been said that Breitbart is more pro-Israel than the Jerusalem Post, and that's actually what I've seen as I've followed. It is not my main source of news. It's something I check every once in a while. Um, I get most of my news internationally and not from uh, U.S. sources, but um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. Now, if there is an article Breitbart has printed that is anti-Semitic in some way, then uh, email me. Mideastnewsbrief at gmail.com. I mean, I've, I'm happy to be stand corrected on that. Now, if you look at the comment section of Breitbart, you've got, yeah, you got racists, you've got anti-Semites. It's, it gets pretty ugly at times. The, the publication itself, what's printed in the publication itself, um, I have not personally seen that. But they did do a really good report about uh, Christians, just what has happened to Christianity in the Middle East, and that Christians are currently fleeing. Um, and I just want to hit a, uh, a few of the numbers in this report. It says, the number of Christians in Middle East North Africa as a component of the overall Muslim-majority population has dropped substantially, from about 10% in 1900 to between 2 and 4% now. There are different estimates for the overall number of Christians that vary from about 12 million in the Middle East alone to about 12 million in the Middle East, North Africa. Breitbart News has learned from the experts and data from U.S. government and independent sources. Uh, let's see. Um, let's get to some, some numbers here. Oh, yeah, Iraq. I think I've, I've mentioned this on the, on the broadcast in the past, but in Iraq, which experts say has experienced the most dramatic drop in Christians due to jihadis and Iran-allied groups. Um, the, the man that they are interviewing, a, a Kazian, told Breitbart News that number has decreased from 1.6 million to less than 100,000. From 1.6 million to less than 100,000, marking a drop of nor of more than 90 percent. That is a that is unbelievable. That is absolutely unreal. And and I could go on with that report, but it is uh, all I can say is 
is the the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, abject experience is uh, decimated, decimated Christian populations. Um, my understanding is that in Israel, uh, Christianity is growing. Um, I know there's obviously a, a, a very strong uh, Christian population in uh, Lebanon as well, but uh, it has through displacement and through uh, just through murder, uh, the Christians in the Middle East face a very, very, very tough reality. So uh, always remember Hebrews 13.3, remember those who are in prison and pray for them as though in prison with them. Um, always being uh, and elsewhere in Ephesians, uh, praying with all kinds of prayers for all the saints. So uh, please continue to pray for Christians persecuted in the Middle East and around uh, the world. A little bit of good news. Uh, Asia Bibi, who was arrested in 2009, it looks like she is, uh, she's going to be, it looks like she's going to be released any day now. Her family uh, is already uh, in Canada and has received asylum from Canada. Uh, Asia, Asia Bibi was on death row and had been since 2009, basically for a dispute out of water well. She went and these Muslim ladies in Pakistan told her to go draw some water from the well uh, for them. She did. On the way back, she took a little sip of it, and these ladies got in an argument with her because she is a kafir. She's, un- she's impure. She's unpure. And she cannot, uh, they cannot drink. They cannot drink after her. And Asia Bibi's response was, uh, was this. Uh, where is that? Oh, here we go. Here we go. Her response, uh, Jesus Christ died for my sins. What did the prophet Muhammad do for you? And... Uh, not long after that, she was arrested and put on trial, charged with blasphemy. And, of course, in Islam, the consequence for blasphemy is death. And she had literally been on, been on death row. And just last, uh, just last month, we, uh, I believe it was last month, she was going to be killed. And the Pakistani Supreme Court, believe it or not, basically came out and said, I mean— the prosecution's evidence was, quote, was nothing short of concoction incarnate. <laughs> I mean, here is this, these, uh, I mean, if you could get this, these, this Muslim Supreme Court telling the Muslim prosecutor that these Muslim ladies, uh, the, the prosecutor in this case, their case against this Christian lady was concoction Incarnate. I'm telling you, God is a worker of miracles. God is a worker of miracles. And I know she was supposed to be, I mean, she's apparently free to go. And now it's just a matter of her being able to get there. So I've been following her for a few years since I learned about her. I know the American Center for Law and Justice has been working on her behalf quite a bit. Um, that's another podcast I really like. Uh, they, they'll, they hit Middle East news, especially they spent a lot of time on Israel uh, on certain broadcasts. So, um, but don't stop listening to this podcast because you start listening to that one. Um, all right. So, and, and I'm going to end off with uh, with a quick summary. Uh, actually, I'm sorry. Almost done. Two things. 
One article from CBN News, April 18th, 2019. This is, we're talking good news. We're talking good news out of the midst of incredible tragedy. Check this out. Years after the Islamic State laid siege to the Syrian town of Kobani, some of its Muslim residents are leaving behind Islam and turning to Christianity. In 2015, Kobani was the epicenter in the battle against ISIS. It was also here that U.S.-led forces beat back ISIS terrorists and liberated the city before finally ending the group's hold over Iraq and Syria last month. Many of the new converts to Christ say the violence ISIS brought to their region left them disillusioned with Islam. No, we were talking about essentially the butterfly effect before, how when God allows evil to happen. Oh, and by the way, if God was going to eradicate all evil, you and I would be eradicated as well. Who and I can who among us can say that we're not without sin? And honestly, if you if you look in scripture, it God even places pride above uh, it seems like he puts like pride in juxtaposition to all other sins, as if it's it's almost uh, a class in itself. So uh, I know with the seven deadly sins, it's it's listed first and so forth. That's a whole uh, you know kind of Bible study. But look, if God, you know, if a good God would eradicate all evil, then that would be the end of all of us. But what is He doing? He's given us time to repent, and He allows certain atrocities to happen because He knows the good that will come from it on the other end. Now sometimes we don't see it. But sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. I have even heard uh, a Christian say, uh, or I was reading about a Christian that said, I thank God for ISIS, because it was through that they came to know about Jesus Christ. Now, I, 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 I you know, I can't, I, I can't go there, right? I've never thanked God for ISIS. I probably never will. But from this man's perspective, it was because ISIS came through that he came to know the love of, of Jesus Christ. I mean, what am, what, what am I going to say to him? Oh, no, you shouldn't thank God for ISIS, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I, he came to know the one true God. So um, I'm not there. Again, I, I don't thank God for ISIS. Um, but I, uh, I do thank God. I do thank God for the good that we are seeing that has come in this situation and in other situations um, from, the, uh, from the tragedy. While many Muslims became agnostic or atheist, others turned to Jesus and opened up Kobani's first church in decades called Church of the Brethren. It is the only evangelical church in Kobani. Uh, Faraz said approximately 80 to 100 people in Kobani now worship at the Evangelical Church. CBN News met with Faraz in February. He founded the church while the new representative form of government in northeast Syria called Self-Administration of Syria, S-A-N-E-S, was emerging, and S-A-N-E-S guarantees uh, religious freedom. They say they're not trying to do a state. They say they're just trying to uh, administer religious freedom or, you know, uh, administer uh, the area and help people with with basic freedom. So we'll we'll see what happens uh, from that. I've talked about uh, the Kurdish area and, and the Kurdish victory over the Islamic State in the past, and 
again, we'll see what um, uh, what things develop. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end off with with this, with a quick uh, quick summary of this. But one of the things that the world community loves to demonize Israel by, Israel with, is a treatment of the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian Arabs. Because, again, remember, in the beginning, they were all Palestinian, Jewish-Palestinian, Arab-Palestinian, because Palestine has never been a nation. Palestine has actually never been a nation-state. That's why they're trying to form a Palestinian state, because there's never been one. It was a region um, designated by the Romans called pa- called Palestine um, at as a um, as a way to kind of uh, rub it in the eye of, of the Jews uh, because of uh, their ancient uh, ancient enemies, the the Philistines. Um, so they're attempting to form one. There there has ne- has never been one, but they love to uh, call out Israel for its treatment of the Palestinians, even though Palis, uh, Palestinian Arabs living in Israel proper have all the same rights as all of the other um, citizens of Israel, and even serve in Knesset. And there's not apartheid. You don't have separate bathrooms for Jews and Arabs. You don't have separate uh, places. And if you want to talk about apartheid, if you, want to, if, you want to, if you want to go there, let's talk about how the Jews are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount. Remember, uh, the Temple Mount is administered by the Palestinian Authority, and Jews are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount because the presence of Jews would desecrate, would desecrate and make the area unholy simply by their presence. So, I mean, you want to talk about racism, you want to talk about apartheid, when a two-state solution would mean the transfer of half a million Jews out of Judea and Samaria completely displaced, like they did in the West Bank. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, no, it's it would be a the West Bank uh, would be a and Abbas has said it on multiple occasions would be Jew redine, would be Jew free when a Palestinian state is established. So, but anyway, they love to talk about the uh, treatment of Palestinians by the Jews, but what they don't talk about is the treat, treatment of Palestinians by certain Arab states. <clears throat> so I'm just going to read the summary at the beginning of this article, and of course it's linked at midisnewsbrief.com. In Lebanon, Palestinians have long been facing discriminatory and, quote, apartheid laws that deny them basic rights. So this is by uh, Khaled Abu Toameh from the uh, Gatestone Institute, April 23rd. Deny them basic rights, including access to dozens of skilled professions, healthcare, and education services. According to some reports, thousands of Palestinians have, have been fleeing Lebanon in recent years as a result of the dire economic conditions and government regulations that deny them basic rights. In 2015, a Saudi court sen- sentenced Palestinian artist and poet Ashraf Fayyad to death by beheading for, quote, apostasy. Later, however, the court overturned the death sentence and replaced it with an eight-year prison term and 800 lashes. The evidence against Fayyad was based on poems included in his book, Instructions Within, as well as social media posts and conversations he had in a coffee shop in Saudi Arabia.
Palestinian leaders do not seem to care about the suffering of their people at the hands of the Arabs. Yet these same leaders are quick to condemn Israel on almost every occasion and available platform. Remember, there's a, there's a whole separate agenda item in the UN Security Council for Israeli human rights abuses. And then there's another agenda item for every other nation in the world. Talk about apartheid. Talk about racism. This is your United Nations, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Palestinian leaders in the West Bank and Gaza Strip are so busy fighting each other and Israel that they seem to have forgotten about the Palestinians and Arab countries being killed, wounded, and arrested every day. To be pro-Israel, to believe that the Jewish people not only have a right to, but desperately need a state in their historic homeland, is not to be anti-anybody else. And in fact, that's why I believe ultimately the only thing that is going to work is a one-state solution for the area that incorporates uh, all people and, and gives everybody equal rights and, and so forth. There's, there's got to be a way to do it because a two-state solution is merely going to give Israel's enemies a launching pad for, for greater and future attacks. So we'll, of course, see what happens, what happens there. <clears throat> All right, well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Follow me on Twitter at Mideast Briefing. And, of course, all of the articles referenced in this broadcast and more will be online at MideastNewsBrief.com in the show notes. Thank you guys again so much for joining us, and we'll see you right here again next week.